With every day that passes, it, sounds, it feels like, as a society, we, um, we become more and more divided and polarized, whether that's along uh, for issues of politics or religion or issues of ethics, um, or even does pineapple have any rightful place on a pizza? There is. <laughs> the Italians in the congregation look disgruntled. <laughs> Division is rife. But one thing that seems to unite us as a people is when we see injustice. And when we, particularly when we see oppression of people, dividing lines start to get broken, people draw together and, and say, we need to act. Of course, the defining example for, of this for us over the last few years was in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed on after that. During the height of a pandemic, 26 million people across the United States came out in protest as a uniting front against what had happened. As people saw, and of course there were millions across the, the world as well, not just in the United States. As people saw the images of what had happened and people saw the video and were seeing the reality of, of evil, and that perhaps the, the injustice and the oppression that had been ignored for so long was now unavoidable. There's almost this response that's kind of baked into us as a people when we see things like that, this collective common response of revulsion against evil. And it brings us together, and we do all that is within our power to see it overcome. Or we at least want to do something to act. And today we are going to see that as we are moved by evil, even more so is God moved against evil and oppression. That he is a God who has actually made himself known and wants to reveal himself as a God who acts against that which is evil and will bring all of his power to bear to overcome it. We are in a series, as has been mentioned, in a series in Exodus, the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. Um, and we have seen it is a book where God is, is looking to reveal himself, that he wants us to know who he really is through this book. We've seen him speaking often and often referring to himself and saying, I am this, or I will do this, or I will save. We've seen him appear in a not-so-subtle way, in a holy presence of a burning bush. And today, we are going to see him start to reveal himself through his actions. Today, we are looking at the plagues that God sends against Egypt to set his people free. These kind of iconic events that happen in Scripture that even if you haven't been around church that often, I imagine all of us have at least heard of God sending the plagues upon Egypt. Some of the most memorable moments in the Bible that then gets a story that's told for generations and generations that this nation of Israel gets founded upon, and it's a story of God moving in extraordinary power against evil and oppression. God showing that he is a God who is going to act in comprehensive and devastating ways against oppression of, of a powerless people so that they can find fullness of freedom. And today, I really believe that God wants to bring freedom to some people today. As a little bit of a, a warning um, as to where we're going, we're going to talk a bit about the reality of evil and how evil is a power that is still at work amongst us today, working to try and enslave us and oppress us. And that is not a very lovely subject. But the reason we're going to do that and the reason we're going to do the hard work of looking at something that's not so pleasant is to move us to the place of appreciating we need a greater power to work amongst us, a power that is greater than evil, and we can look to a God who is a God of strength and a God who acts against that evil on our behalf so that all of the power of heaven comes to set us free so that we might step into freedom. So today's message is called, Here Comes the Power. 
and I'm going to speak for the next 30 minutes or so, uh, and then we're going to make an opportunity to respond. And as I was saying before, at the end, we're going to have a chance that if you feel like you're in this place of, of feeling trapped or enslaved or captive in some way, we're going to make an opportunity to, to pray, to come forward for prayer and respond. So as we've been singing about in our worship, he is the God who sets people free. And there is an opportunity for, for you to perhaps step into a new freedom that God has for you today. So I almost just want to be kind of priming you for that and thinking, having an expectation, maybe God wants to do something in me and with me today. The plagues take place over four chapters in the book of Exodus, and rather than the five-hour sermon that I know you are all dying to hear today, what we're going to do is we're going to have a summary. I'm going to summarize what the plagues look like, just so we get a sense of the bigger picture of what's going on, and then we'll read from one that I think gives a really good um, sense of the whole of what is going on, so that we don't have a five-hour sermon. Last week, we saw Moses and Aaron, um, they approached Pharaoh for the first time to say those famous lines, let our people go. And, uh, and, and Pharaoh refused the people of Israel that is they're, 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 they're advocating on behalf of this nation, this group of people that have are trapped in Egypt under brutal slavery and doing bitter, hard labor, totally helpless, groaning, crying out for freedom that they can't get for themselves. And as chapter 7 then opens, we again see them coming before Pharaoh, but now a little bit of extra spice is sprinkled on because God is now promising, I am going to multiply my signs and wonders throughout Egypt. And with that, the ten plagues begin. And it very much is God multiplying his signs and wonders. You know, plague actually isn't a word that we find in the Bible to describe what's going on here. It's not necessarily an unhelpful word. Certainly, the, it, it, they were plagued by what happened. Uh, but signs and wonders might be a more helpful way of us thinking about what's going on because this is exactly what God is trying to do. He's trying to give signposts of this is who he is and this is how he acts and this is, this is something of who he is. He, in fact, he's actually answering a question that Pharaoh himself has asked. Back in chapter 5, when Moses and Aaron first came to him to ask for freedom, he said in response, who is the Lord that is saying that he's, he wants his people free? And just to be clear, this is not a genuinely seeking question from Pharaoh. He's not on an alpha course, like, oh, who is God? He, this is a question of arrogance. This is a question of pride. You know, I'm in control in Egypt. Why should I care about the Lord? And here is the response. In the first plague that comes, God says to him, by this, speaking to Pharaoh, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And just like that, the Nile turns to blood. And the events that follow, they are events of massive scale, these plagues. They are instant, they happen in a moment, and they impact everything, everywhere, across a whole nation. It is almost impossible, I think, for us to imagine the, the sheer scale of what is happening in each of these plague events, let alone to try and get the whole thing in our minds. You get a feel for it a little bit in the way that it talks about the frogs, the second plague. It says this, the, listen to the language of, of it building up. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed, and into your, the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up on you, and your people, and all your servants. This is not like, oh, there's going to be a lot of frogs. This is kind of traumatic amount of frogs going on. Everywhere you look, frogs. 
Every time you try and wash, you step out of the shower and just get mobbed by frogs. You're trying to sleep, but you can't get to sleep because there's frogs just hopping on you. You try and eat something, and you just end up with six frogs in your mouth. I mean, it would be absolutely dreadful. We have experienced a little bit of what the kind of huge disruption to our lives coming out of nowhere can look like over the last few years. But each of these plagues on their own would have been like an absolutely different level of national disruption. And there were ten of them all happening over a period of probably about six to nine months, which is absolutely relentless for them. Each one getting more and more severe. Nile turned to blood, then the, the frogs coming, then the gnats, then the flies, then all of their livestock dying, and then the boils breaking out on their skin, and then uh, huge hailstones falling down on them, and then the locusts coming and eating all of their crops, and then just plunged into darkness day and night. And then finally, we'll look at it next week, the slaughter of the firstborn. And after each of these severe events, Pharaoh is challenged, let my people go, and each time stubbornly refuses. And so God has to come again to break his resolve. And he comes in an attempt to try and humble this proud nation. The whole of Egypt thought that it was kind of, it had arrived mainly because the whole nation was built upon its crop production. And so the irrigation channels of the Nile and the mega-hot beating sun of Egypt brought huge growth to their crops and they became super rich. And so in a moment, what God does is he turns the Nile to, to blood, useless. He turns the sun off, just switched off, no more growth. And then he comes against the crops and pounds them with heavy hailstones and sends locusts upon them to devour them. A proud nation brought to its knees, whole economy collapsing, a supreme God showing his strength. And we're going to focus on one now. We're going to look at the seventh plague, which is the hailstones. And there's two reasons for this. Firstly, I think it is a great plague to look at. It gives you a real good sense of the whole of what God is doing. Secondly, because we are in Manchester, I thought we'd all be most at home with an extreme weather event. So we're going to read from chapter 9, verse 13. If you've got a Bible, you can read along. The words will be on the screen as well, so you can read there. Chapter 9, verse 13, we'll read through to 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourselves before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no, God, no one, none like me in all the earth. There it is again, so that you may know. For by now, I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field and... Excuse me, I just lost my place. And all you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh and hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. 
on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards the heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. Then if you've ever taken out an insurance policy, and in the small print at the bottom when you're about to sign, it says, your car will not be covered if there is an act of God. (laughs) And I wondered, I wonder what that would look like. (laughs) I think this is it. Hail coming down. And we're not talking, you know, the piddly, annoying hail that we get here in Manchester. Big hail. Very heavy hail, we read in verse 24. Enough to kill, heavy enough to kill, every man and beast that is in the field. This is part hailstorm, part meteor shower coming down with fire flashing, just thrown in for good measure. This would definitely be enough to crush your Vauxhall Corsa. This is a terrifying, fearsome event sent by God. And he does it, as we read in verse 16, as he says to Pharaoh, to show you my power. To Pharaoh, who has stubbornly refused to acknowledge God, as he gets to this seventh seventh plague, things have been building and building and building, and now God has got to the point where he says, I am going to show you the true extent of my power in opposition to the power of Pharaoh. Because so far in the book of Exodus, that is the only power that we've really seen. We've seen the power of Pharaoh at work and how he has used his power for evil and oppression. To put people into slavery, to torture them, to kill newborns, to go about the systematic destruction of a vast people to try and exterminate them. As we've seen, it is the power, or it's the embodiment almost of evil itself. And even in the plagues, as God is on the move, Egypt continues to show its power. Some of the previous plague accounts that we, uh, not this one, but the ones prior, we see that in the midst of them, as the plagues are sent, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. We see it a few times. You might be able to see on the slide behind. That they, they did the same as what God was doing. They might not be able to match it quite in the magnitude of what God was doing, but they were able to do something that measured up to what God was doing. Supernatural power at work to oppose the work of God. Supernatural power at work to try and keep the people of God enslaved and oppressed. This is what we mean when we talk about the power of evil at work in Egypt. It's not just a way that we kind of, uh, like a, a little phrase, a catch-all phrase for like, oh, just really, 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 really bad people. No, we're talking about some real, invisible, supernatural powers that are working behind the acts of the Egyptian people and Pharaoh in this. The, behind the acts of evil and destruction. This is, this is what God is coming against and looking to confront in the plague accounts. The powers that are real, and evil, and have got a hold of his people. Now, we find ourselves today in a time where if we believe in a living, invisible God who we have a personal relationship with and that we know, 
That is enough to put us right out there on the margins of society. And that means that then to also believe in that, but then also believe in the presence of evil and that there is real forces or personalities or being that are opposed to God and are evil and are looking to work against us to disrupt and to influence and to enslave, that is definitely not something to be admitted in polite company. That we all want to, to some extent, want to be seen as, yeah, people of faith maybe, but also people with a bit of intellectual respectability. We don't necessarily want to believe in stuff like this. It can be a bit embarrassing. And so whether we choose to intentionally or not, it can become more convenient for us perhaps to ignore that this aspect of the spiritual world is going on. But here it is. Real power of evil on display. And the Apostle Paul later writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, so this is writing to the New Testament, to the, in the New Testament to the church, so to us, very much relevant for us. He says, Satan will not outsmart us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. But I think so often we are unaware of his schemes. I think that's exactly what is going on and can be a real problem for us, is that we don't quite see that the enemy is actually still at work amongst us. He is still looking to enslave. He's still looking to try and get us so he can destroy us. And that may not mean that he takes us off and cuts us off to a foreign land and we're held captive there. But a helpful principle, I think, generally for the Bible is if we see something happen physically in the Old Testament, that often then gets played out in a spiritual sense in the New Testament. So evil is at work, but looking to enslave us to things that are much closer to home. That he's working behind the scenes to bring us into bondage to pornography addiction. So easy to get drawn in, and then almost impossible to get out. And we can find ourselves trapped, and we find ourselves in a place where I don't know how I ended up in this place. I am desperate to get free, but I've tried everything, and I cannot get out. We get trapped, and then the feelings of shame and inadequacy feel like they're absolutely destroying us. Or getting enslaved to something like body image. And what starts as a really healthy desire to, I just want to get fit, I want to eat healthy, has got you miserable. Because you are so conscious, maybe even more conscious than ever, of how you look, and then you're never satisfied with how you look, and you just work harder and harder and harder at the gym and working out, and you realize, I'm enslaved to this, and I'm never going to be happy. It's not freedom. There's so many examples I could give. For me, perhaps the area where I feel most vulnerable, or certainly one of the areas where I'm most vulnerable, is being enslaved to performance. That again, what starts as a really good desire to, I just want to do a, a job well. If I'm not careful, what can then happen is, I start to set for myself increasingly impossible standards whether that's in my job or just wanting to run a, a personal best in a certain distance or trying to pan fry a piece of sea bass without the blinking thing falling apart in the pan, any tips would be very welcome. And I set myself these standards, and I wonder if any of you can relate, and then when I can't, inevitably you can't always measure up to the impossibly high standards you set for yourself and you can find yourself trapped in a cycle of inadequacy and failure and I'm not enough. A slavery. And what we need to see is that whatever our thing is for us, wherever we're most vulnerable, what is often the case is that it's something other than just our fallen nature or our natural bent towards sin at work. What is going on that there is a power behind it. It's trying to 
keep us captive, trying to keep us enslaved. It likes Pharaoh stubbornly saying again and again, no, I will not let the people go. I'm going to keep them in bondage so that they might lose hope that any freedom might be on the horizon. Why is this important to know? As I said, it's not a very nice subject to be looking at. It's not a very comfortable thing to be talking about. Why am I taking up your time with this on a Sunday morning? Because to see this is the only way into lasting freedom. It's only then that we see there is no amount of willpower that will get us free. There's no amount of discipline on our part that will lead us into freedom. We have to see that at its root behind it, there is a power at work bigger than us trying to keep us enslaved, trying to keep us captive. We cannot work our own way out of some of these things. We cannot fight our way free. We need help. Why else did Jesus teach in his most famous, most well-known, essential prayer that we've, maybe all of us have been praying since like primary school age where we're taught it and we've spoken it so many times, a prayer for Christians, a prayer for people already saved, all Christians everywhere at all times. He told us to pray, deliver us from evil. Why did Jesus ask us to pray that? Because we can't deliver ourselves. We can't set ourselves free. We need to be set free by another. And if you are stuck, you are feeling just hopeless. You feel like, I have tried to get myself free. I've done everything to get myself out of this. You perhaps find yourselves in habits or lifestyle patterns that you just know are killing you, but you just feel completely powerless to get yourself out. Or there's something else going on You don't really know what it is, but you just know you feel trapped, you feel captive, you feel enslaved in some way. There is not something wrong with you. There is something greater than you at work. Something that is looking to keep you enslaved, that is beyond your strength. And we need to be freed. We need to be freed by a power even greater than this power. We need to be freed by the one who holds all of the hailstones in his hand. Because as God speaks to to Pharaoh, this is exactly what he's doing. He's showing the strength of his hand. Verse 14, he says, For this time I will send send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put my hand out and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Listen to that. The Pharaoh that says to him, who is the Lord? He just says, look, one move of my hand, Pharaoh, I could have swatted you away. But, he says, for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. He's saying, I've chosen not to crush you. I could have, but I chose not to, but instead to raise you up Why? So that you might witness my power. This is a big move from God. I'm going to show you what power really looks like. And when the Bible wants to demonstrate to us what the almighty God looks like when he's moving in sovereign power and how he is unmatched and unrivaled, it often talks about him controlling the weather. There's many examples we could look at. Here's just one from Psalm 147. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. That's hail. 
That's what you have to call hail from now on. Crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cult? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes the wind blow and the waters flow. And then Psalm 148, one verse. Fire and hail, just like here. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. It speaks of the ease and, that God has to control the whole of the heavens. And that's what we see when Jesus is on the boat with some disciples and a storm comes out of nowhere and the, the waves start tossing it around and the wind buffets against it and the disciples are freaking out, losing their mind. And Jesus just speaks to the weather and he rebukes the wind and he says, peace, be still. Immediately, still and silence. And the reaction then of the disciples tells us everything we need to know. Because here are men that have seen Jesus do a lot of fairly gnarly stuff already. I mean, he has healed countless number of people already in his ministry. They know him pretty well. He's cast out demons. He's been uh, getting paralytics to stand up and then just jump around as if nothing is, is wrong with them at all because nothing is. And uh, healing lepers and doing all sorts of stuff. And they know him personally. The supernatural is becoming normal and everyday for them. But they see this controlling the weather, and they lose their mind. In Mark chapter 4, it says, they were filled with great fear. They weren't just like, oh, Jesus is doing something a bit different. Interesting. They were filled with fear when they saw this and said, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The witness of Scripture is absolutely clear. When the weather, even the weather is listening, this is power on display. And here the weather listens. God speaks to the hail, and he tells it exactly what it will be. He said, we're not just going to have hail. He is precise. We are going to have very heavy hail. And he speaks to the hail, and he tells it exactly when it would fall. Verse 18, this time tomorrow, and then like clockwork with total accuracy that the Met Office could definitely learn from, it came. God then speaks to the hail and tells it exactly how much of this hail is going to fall in verse 22. That there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. There's enough of this heavy hail in heaven to cover a whole nation. And then he tells it precisely, precisely where it is going to fall. Verse 26. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, there was no hail. We see this throughout the plague accounts, that the divine protection of God's people, whether it's the livestock being slaughtered or whether it's the locusts coming upon the fields or, or even darkness coming upon Egypt, doesn't affect his people. That when the devastating, all-consuming effects of these plagues come upon the nation, everything in all the land of Egypt, Goshen, which is in Egypt, completely protected. This is control in action. I mean, if you just imagine what this was like when the hail was falling, it is absolutely wild. Because there must have been some kind of dividing line between Egypt, where all the hail was falling, and Goshen, where it wasn't. Now, you stand here, crushed to death by a killer hailstone. Stand here, glorious sunshine, hang out the washing, put a barbecue on. That is the control of God. Every stone must listen to his voice, come under his command. After six chapters of people crying out, of waiting, 
of expectation starting to build, of, of doubt then, of confusion, of God, when are you going to act? Where are you? Do you really care about your people? God repeatedly coming from heaven and saying, no, no, I will move, I will act, I will save. Now, here he comes in power the awesome, terrifying strength, the mighty hand of God, the power of the heavens coming down to earth. And as he does these mighty acts, what is it that this almighty God, this Lord of all, what is it that this God speaks, who speaks to the weather? What is it that he cries time and time again in verse 13 and all throughout the 10 plagues? He cries, let my people go. He is on the move for the freedom of his people. His power and strength on display for the freedom of his people. He speaks to the weather, speaks to the weather for the freedom of his people. Hail and fire coming down on evil for the freedom of his people. He is a God who shows his power so the captives can walk free and we can step into the fullness of freedom. Freedom that we find by coming to him, we see here. If you were to go into Manchester City Centre and talk to know, about 100 people and say to them, what is it that God says to Moses to say to Pharaoh throughout the plague accounts. I reckon you would get a pretty good hit rate of responses. Not everybody, but I reckon a fairly good response rate from people as to what Moses says to Pharaoh. Some people would tell you, other people would sing to you, let my people go, right? It's one of the most iconic lines in all of the Bible. It's one of those memorable phrases, even if you're not familiar with it, you kind of, you've heard of it. But I reckon if you would, you would then get a very low hit rate, if you were then to ask, and what are the words that always follow on from those? That every time Moses speaks to Pharaoh, he says these exact same words afterwards. In the plague account, God never just says, let my people go. He always follows it with the same words that we see here in verse 13. Let my people go that they may serve me. That they may serve me. As he commands this freedom for his people, not only does he want them to know what they have been freed from, that they can come out from the oppression and the enslavement, but he wants them to know what it is they have been freed to and what real freedom looks like. They have been freed to come to him. As Israel were, ens were enslaved early on in, in the book of Exodus, ruthlessly forced to serve Pharaoh. In fact, it uses exactly the same word at the beginning of the book, this word serve, to serve Pharaoh. Now, with redemption on the horizon, the freedom that they are about to step into is freedom to serve God. Freed from service to Pharaoh, freed to service to God. Freed from being enslaved to Pharaoh, freed to belong to God. Notice those are the only two options on the table. Either belonging to Pharaoh or belonging to God. That if we really want to walk into the freedom that God has for us, if we want to step away from the power of evil, step away from its enslaving grip on our lives, we need to know not just what we have been freed from and that we want to get out of something, we need to know where we, where we need to run to. We need to know who it is that we are to go. This is where we need to go. 
This is who we need to go to, to serve him. To serve him, as he says in chapter 3, as he speaks of what this freedom looks like, to serve God on the mountain. Mount Sinai, where they will arrive in due course, as we will see. This is what it looks like to serve God on the mountain. This is the place of where Moses and the people together experience the awesome privilege of coming into the presence of God. It's on the mountain where God joins himself to his people in perfect relationship, perfect union of everlasting love. It's on the mountain where God then lovingly teaches and instructs his people, this is how you can live to walk in this freedom. This is how you can have a rich, full, free life. And it's this life that is available to us today in Jesus. As Paul says in the, to a letter to the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He really wants us to be free. He really wants you to be free today, as free as you can possibly be, to walk in the fullness of freedom. He has made a way for us out of Egypt so that we can run to the mountain of God. Like Moses, Jesus entered into the presence of evil. He stared it down. He confronted it face to face. And he said to evil, let my people go. And in Christ, God showed his power. At the cross, all of heaven's might came raining down on the earth. Rocks started to crack. The sky went dark. The power of the almighty God on display to show Evil has met its match at the crucifixion. To humiliate, to put to open shame for all the world to see, evil has been overthrown and Christ has conquered. He has the victory and we can be free. Free from the grip of sin, free to run to him. Free to live, life of, uh, live a life of freedom with him in his presence humbling ourselves before him, worshipping him upon the mountain, our powerful God, our liberator, our redeemer, in his presence, in deep relationship with him, living obedient to his ways and his commands. This is the freedom that we long for.